Well, let me invite you to join me in your Bibles in the Gospel of John chapter 2. And as you're turning to John chapter 2, I want to ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud or raise your hand, right? But here's the question. Have you ever asked God for a sign? Maybe you were in a moment where you, you wanted some proof that God was there. God, would you show me some kind of sign? Would you show me that you're there? Maybe you wanted some kind of sign that God cared. There was something going on in your life or something going on in the world where you just started thinking, God, are you, are you even there? Are you even concerned with what's going on out here? Would you show me some way that you care about this problem I'm going through or this thing that the, the world is dealing with right now? Or maybe you just wanted some kind of direction. God, would you show me which way to go? Would you show me what to do in this situation? If you've ever asked for a sign, and I suspect many of us, maybe most of us have at one point or another, if you've ever asked God for a sign, you are certainly not alone. Not only in this room, but even if we were to sort of gather up all the characters from the Bible and ask them this question, there are some people in the Bible who asked for a sign and who got it. And there are some people in the Bible who didn't ask for a sign, but got one anyway. One of the signs that people are given in Scripture, that's a sign for us as well, is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about the resurrection as a sign before, but the Bible tells us on more than one occasion that it is. For example, one time uh, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 12 that uh, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now they were probably thinking, miracle, you know, demonstration of power, you know, heal somebody, make something happen, do the kind of thing Moses did or Elijah did. But here's what Jesus did. It says, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And he's probably saying that to them because they, their hearts weren't really right even in their asking for a sign. But he said, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jesus says, here's the sign I'm going to give you. It's probably not the kind of sign you were asking for, but I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. Remember Jonah got swallowed by the fish, and he was in there for three days before he got spat out on the dry land again. And Jesus said, that's the kind of thing that's going to happen to me, and that's going to be your sign. I'm going to be three days and three nights, in, not in a fish, but in the heart of the earth, in a tomb. But I'm only going to be in there for three days. And when I come out, that's going to be your sign. On another occasion, the Apostle Paul, when he was preaching in Athens, which was that city in Greece where there was so much philosophy and culture and debate and, and people loved to hear new things, the Bible tells us, Paul came and he preached the gospel there. He told them about the one true God. They worshipped all kinds of idols. And he said, you know, you have this altar to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you who that is. It's the creator God who doesn't live 
in uh, temples made by hands. He hasn't served by human hands. He's the one who created everything. And then he gets to the end of his sermon and he says to these uh, pagans, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. You didn't know any better before. But, he says, now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, he's saying there's one God, there's one judgment coming, and everybody's going to be there. And so you need to repent of your sin, of your idolatry. And you need to turn to the true God because God is going to judge everyone. And He's going to judge everyone through one man. And so that you will know who this man is, this is the man that God raised from the dead. That's your sign that Jesus is the judge. The one who everyone will have to appear before on the last day. As heavy as that word sounds, right? There's good news in that statement too, right? Because he says God commands everyone everywhere to repent. And if you repent, right, there's a promise of salvation, of forgiveness, of life. And we're going to get to some of that, some of what the resurrection of Jesus gives us here in just a moment. But uh, for now, I want us to look at the story of Jesus, the temple, and the sign of the resurrection in John chapter 2. This is perhaps the clearest place that the Bible refers to the resurrection of Jesus as a sign. And it's embedded in a story that is probably familiar to many of you. The story of Jesus cleansing the temple. And I'm going to read this story for us beginning in verse 12. I'll read down to verse 22 of John chapter 2. And listen for the what Jesus says about the significance of the resurrection as a sign for us. Verse 12 says, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. This is something his family did all throughout uh, his younger years as he was growing up. The Gospel of Luke tells us 
that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. This was part of his tradition. This was part of his ritual. This was part of what the Jews uh, were called upon to do each year, was to remember that great act of salvation at the first Passover when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's Passover time, which means the, the number of people in Jerusalem would, would swell tremendously. All kinds of people who lived outside of Jerusalem would flock to Jerusalem for this feast and fill up the streets and all the places around. And, and so there was a great crowd in Jerusalem at this time. And Jesus went into the temple and he saw something that displeased him. Something that troubled him. And he did something about it. Right? He saw people buying and selling in the temple. He saw people changing money in the temple. And they were there for what on the surface seems like a reasonable reason. People need to offer sacrifices at the temple. We're here to provide animals for them to purchase for sacrifice. People are coming from all over the Roman Empire to uh, bring their sacrifices. They're not all coming with the right kind of money. So we have money changers here who can exchange your money and also make a little money for themselves to help you out. That all seems reasonable on the surface. But Jesus looks at it and says, this is a problem. This ought not to be happening. And I'm going to do something about it. Why is Jesus so troubled by these people selling animals for sacrifice and changing money right there in the temple? Well, he tells us. He tells us in verse 16. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, here's the first thing he tells us in that statement. The temple is his father's house. It's God's house. It's God's dwelling place. From the very beginning, when God told Moses to make the tabernacle, and then later the tabernacle was replaced by the temple, God told Moses, let them, let the people, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The the tabernacle and later the temple is not mainly for the people. It's for God to come and dwell in the midst of his people. That's his house. That's his dwelling place. That's where his presence rests. That's where he has put his name. And Jesus says this most holy place where God has where God dwells that is God's house you have turned it into a marketplace. Now, I don't know about you but I don't want to live in a marketplace. I don't want anybody turning my house into a, a house of trade. And Jesus says you have turned God's house, my father's house into a marketplace into a place of trade. And you need to get all this stuff out of here. Now, when he says that, he also tells us something about himself. Because he doesn't just say, this is God's house. He says, this is my father's house. Which means, who's Jesus? Jesus is God's own 
Son. I am the Son of God, and I am here to tell you, my Father does not like what you're doing in this temple. This is His house, and this is not what He designed His house for. This is not how He designed His house to be treated. And so we're not going to do this in here anymore. Now, many people think of church buildings today as sort of like the, the replacement of the temple. We don't have a temple in Jerusalem anymore. So oftentimes people think about church buildings as a temple. But the Bible never says that church buildings are the temple of God. It does say that the people of God, the church, are now the temple of God. Do you know why? Because God has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in each and every believer. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You are now the temple of God. You are now the dwelling place of God. You are holy. You are set apart. Not because you're special or because you are sinless or something. We know we all are not sinless. But despite our sin. If we're in Christ, God has forgiven us and God has given the Holy Spirit to live in us and set us apart as His own. His own dwelling place. Now when Jesus did this, just imagine that you were one of His disciples and you're watching this going on. You've maybe seen Jesus do some interesting things already, but this is like at a different level. He's gone into a public place, a holy site, and he has taken charge and said, everybody in here is doing the wrong thing and we're going to clean this up. If you're with Jesus, you might be thinking, yeah, you tell him. Or you might be thinking, ooh, how's this going to go, right? Or why is he doing this? And John tells us what his disciples were thinking as Jesus did this in verse 17. It said, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal is a passion to do something that's right in the Bible. Zeal is a passion for righteousness. And they remembered this scripture that's from one of the Psalms of David. Where David said, zeal for your house has consumed you. Remember, David was the one who was determined to build the temple. They had the tabernacle as God's dwelling place when they were wandering through the wilderness and making their way into the promised land. But in David's time, they've now established themselves in the promised land. They're not moving from place to place. David's the king. He's got a great, big, nice house. And God's living in a tent. David says, that's a problem. God needs a house. If I've got a house, surely God needs a house. Right? And so David was determined to build this temple. Of course, he didn't get to, but his son Solomon ended up building the temple. But David was consumed with this passion to see a temple built for the Lord. He made many of the preparations in advance that enabled Solomon to actually build the temple. And so the disciples are thinking back onto that verse from Psalm 69, where David says, zeal for your house has consumed me. But notice that John says something a little bit different here. David said, zeal for your house consumed me, has consumed me. In the past, it's something that's already happened. David's talking about from his own life. 
But here, John says, they remembered zeal for your house will consume it in the future. Why the change? Why think about this verse that David wrote anyway? Here's the reason. And it's another part of helping us understand who Jesus is. All throughout the Old Testament, God promised that He would send a Savior King. Someone to deliver His people and reign over His people for their good and their blessing. And to make things right and to destroy their enemies and all those things. And God told David it was going to be one of His own sons from His line who would have an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. The prophet Isaiah says that the one who would sit on David's throne would bring about everlasting peace and righteousness. So the disciples know that the Messiah, the Savior, the King that God has promised to come and deliver us is going to come from David's line. And they remember how passionate David was about the temple. And they know that this King who's going to come from David's line, he's going to be like David in a lot of ways. And they watch Jesus driving these animals out of the temple, turning over the tables of the money changers, and they go, there's another sign that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the one, like David, but greater than David, who's going to come and deliver us and set everything right. What David did and experienced with the temple was not just something that was true of him, it's something that became a prophecy Zeal for your house will consume me when I come. The one who comes from David's line. The one who comes as the Savior to sit on David's throne. That's Jesus. Now, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, you know the story by now, right? But what do you think is going to happen when Jesus comes into this public place, this holy site of the temple, and he starts taking charge and cleaning house and setting things right? You would think if this was anybody's prerogative, it would be the high priest, right? Or maybe some of the priests under him. He would say, hey, we've got a problem in the temple. I need you all to go clean this up. But Jesus comes in and takes charge. And some people come to him, the Jews, it says to him in verse 18, come to him and they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? If you're some kind of prophet, who has some kind of special authority to do this, you need to prove it. You need to demonstrate it. If you think on on a much smaller level and a little bit at a a, a kind of a silly level, right? we've all probably had the experience before where you go to the grocery store and they've rearranged the whole thing again once you've finally figured out where everything is and you get in there and nothing is where you knew that it was last time you were here. What if you started grabbing employees and saying, hey, the cereal is supposed to be on that aisle over there, and this stuff needs to be back on aisle 7, and we need to get this stuff fixed, right, and put that back over there? Eventually, somebody's going to come up to you and say, uh, excuse me, are you the manager? Are, are you in charge here? Where, where's your badge? Who, who are you to be moving all this stuff around and setting these things right? That's what's happening to Jesus. He's taking charge of the temple, and people want to know what right, what authority he has to do that. 
Now, the Jews have had many people sent by God as prophets to set them straight on some things. So they know God could be doing that through Jesus. But if so, they want some proof. They want to know that's who he is, and they've got to show him some kind of they want him to show them some kind of sign to prove that. So what sign do you show us for doing these things? They asked Jesus. So he answers them, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's your sign. Now that's not the kind of sign they wanted or were looking for. That's a very complicated sign on the surface. Right? Because he's telling them, it sounds like to them, in order for me to perform my sign, first you have to do something you don't want to do. You've got to tear down this temple. And then once you've torn it down, I'll raise it up. That's your sign. Well, we don't want to do that. And even if we did, we don't believe you could do what you're saying you could do, because it's taken decades to build this temple and you're talking about raising it up in three days I don't think so I don't think so but Jesus doesn't mean what they think he means John tells us in verse 21 he was speaking about the temple of his body now here's the here's the problem The Jews don't know who they're talking to. I mean, they probably know his name is Jesus. They might know a little bit about where he's from and things like that. They could probably tell he's got a group of disciples, etc. But they don't really know who he is. Because if they knew who he was, they could have put together what he meant when he said, destroy this temple And in three days I will raise it up. Because here's who Jesus is. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. Jesus is the temple. Right? If the temple is the place where God dwells, and now John has told us at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is that? That is God becoming a human temple. God has taken on flesh and come to dwell among men. That's who Jesus is. He's the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, was born of the virgin, right, and now is fully human while remaining fully God. Colossians 2.9 says that in Him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Everything that God is, Jesus is. He's not the Father, and He's not the Holy Spirit. He's the Son. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're one God. Same nature, same attributes, same character. Same divinity, deity. All of that dwells in Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the fulfillment of what the temple was about. In the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve. He dwelt with them. When they got kicked out of the garden, 
God said to Moses later, build a temple, I'll dwell in your midst again. But under certain restrictions. Right? Now, even better, God has come himself in the person of his son, whom he sent into the world. Jesus is now the temple. Right? And so, as one teacher says, the Lord does two things with this sign here that he gives them. First, he says, he foretells his future death, and second, his resurrection. So Jesus is saying, I'm the temple, and here's your sign. You destroy this temple, not the building. You destroy me. I'm the temple now. You destroy me, the temple of my body, and on the third day, I will raise it up. And then you'll know that I had every ounce of authority necessary to do exactly what I did today. But that's when you're going to know. You're not going to know who I really am until I walk out of the tomb on the third day. That's what he means by that sign. Now the disciples didn't understand that in the moment. Verse 22 says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it was after Jesus rose, they started thinking back to this event. And it started to dawn on them what Jesus meant. Now that he had been destroyed bodily, and yet raised on the third day and was alive. They remembered he said this, and they believed him. He is the temple. He is God in the flesh. He is God dwelling amongst us. So that even Thomas, who when he heard about the resurrection of Jesus, did not believe I'm not believing that until I see it with my own eyes. Till I touch his hands, till I touch his side, till I've got physical proof that Jesus is alive, I'm not believing it. And when Jesus showed up and said, Here I am, touch me here, see for yourself, Thomas, what was his conclusion? My Lord and my God. You are God in the flesh. You are God dwelling among us. You are the temple. This is not only their sign, this is our sign. If you want to know, is God really there? Look at where he's not. He's not in that tomb anymore. If you want to know if God really cares, this is your sign. God sent His very own Son to be destroyed on a cross and lay lifeless in a tomb till the third day when He came out alive again to say, not only do I care, I love you. And I have been through death and I have conquered hell to save you. You, if you'll trust me, if you'll follow me. Jesus' death and resurrection also shows us that our sins have been paid for. Because before Jesus went to the cross, he told his disciples, 
At that last meal he shared with them, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead because the wages have been paid in full. His resurrection says your sins have been covered, your debts have been paid. If you will trust in him, you will be forgiven. And Jesus' resurrection says there's coming a day of resurrection for you too. Because Jesus' resurrection wasn't just his triumph over death and hell for himself. It was his triumph over death and hell for us. That's why Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the harvest. That Jesus' resurrection also secures our resurrection. When he comes back, that's when the full harvest is going to come. When all those who belong to Jesus are going to be raised from the dead, never to die again. And his resurrection is the promise of the new creation. The Bible doesn't end where everybody thinks that it ends. A lot of times we think the Bible ends with uh, our bodies in the ground and our spirits in heaven, and that's, that's the end. That's as good as it gets. Well, Paul says that's what happens now. And if I were to die now, my spirit would go into the presence of God, my body would be in the ground. And Paul says, hey, that's better than here. That's better than this. But he doesn't say it's best. Where the Bible ends is with all God's people raised from the dead, with God making all things new, with a new heaven, a new earth, where we dwell in God's presence with resurrected, glorified bodies, just like Jesus' resurrected body, that never get sick, that never get die, that never, that never grow old, that are immortal, imperishable, and capable of dwelling in the glorious presence of God forever. The resurrection is also a sign of that. So if you are looking for a sign, look at the empty tomb. Look at the empty tomb. That's where Jesus pointed. More than once, when he was asked for a sign, he said, here's the sign I'll give you. Destroy this temple, and on the third day I'll raise it up. You want a sign? I'm not going to give you any sign but the sign of Jonah. The son of man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and then he's not going to be there anymore. That empty tomb, in that resurrection, God has planted in the middle of his creation a seed of hope. Because it's dark out there, and life is hard, and you get old faster than you wish you did. Right? And things start to break, and life hurts, and all kinds of things go wrong. And sometimes we just look up at the heavens and think, God, where are you? And what is going on? And is this ever going to get better? And he says, look at that empty tomb. It's just the first one. There's going to be an innumerable number 
of open tombs one day and glorious resurrected bodies springing up from them to join Jesus in all of his glory on the new heavens in the new earth and you're going to dwell in a place where there's no more death and no more curse and no more heartache and I'm going to wipe away every one of your tears and all you're going to know from then on is joy and gladness and peace and life. And my son did that for you. And it's going to be yours if you'll just trust him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what Jesus went through for us. That he came down for us, that he became man for us, that he lived and suffered and died for us, that he rose for us. And we pray, God, that that seed of hope that you planted in that empty tomb, that you would plant that seed in our hearts as well, that it would grow and flourish, that in our hearts, day after day, there would be a note of hope that grows stronger and louder with each passing day that reminds us that this world is not all there is, that the way things are is not the way they will always be, but that you are at work And that one day you will make all things new. And that because of that we can live with hope. We can walk in hope. We can die with hope. Because we know that death will not have the last word for us. Just like it did not have the last word for Jesus. We give you thanks in his name. Amen. Barbara is going to come and lead us as we respond to the Lord and worship.